0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you're turning that Bible this morning to Psalm 37, I was in Psalm 37 this week in my own devotions, and I just thought, that's a good passage for the beginning of a year. Uh, now, this is the second Sunday in this year, we get that, but nonetheless, I just thought this was outstanding, and so we're going to spend a little time there today. Uh, this is a passage, if you'll look at it, uh, look at 3711. We're gonna read, we're gonna to go to the top here in just a, moment, a minute, but it says, the humble will inherit the land. Now that right there ought to ring a bell somehow. We think Jesus had this chapter in mind, and that verse in particular in mind, when he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So most scholars would say this is what Jesus was thinking about when he said, "'Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth.'" So I think this whole passage really is about meekness. So if you please stand and honor the Word of God. Let's do chapter 37, Psalms 37, 1 through 11. "'Do not get upset because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will wither. They'll wither quickly like the grass and decay like the green plants.'" You trust in the Lord and do good. Live in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He'll bring out your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not get upset because of one who is successful in his way, because of the person who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Abandon wrath. Do not get upset. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be eliminated. But those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked person will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble, the meek will inherit the land. And will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So Jesus, we just pray your blessing over this word for our lives today, where we want to hear from you, from your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been here long, you know how much I love animals. I do not, all right? Sorry about that for you, dog and cat lovers, but I just—I'm sorry. I just—I had some bad experiences growing up. Those experiences cover me all the way to the till to today. In fact, uh, still I have a lot of good experiences. And you say, "Well, if you just get to know my dog, yeah, just, nah, just." Anyway, so I want you to know, just you know, In fact, though, I, I can appreciate trained dogs, if you know what I mean. Uh, when I am a, I, Mary bought me a bike. For Christmas, and I bought her a bike for Christmas, so we'd have some exercise we can do together. So we got some brand new bikes. I take my brand new bike, and I take it around. There's a little lake close by, and it's for uh, it's where rich people live, but the rich people let us on so we can run run around their lake. So uh, we uh, we the brick brack of the of the uh, community go around their lake, and we you know, kind of say hey thanks as we go by their houses, humongous houses. Anyway, we go around, and inevitably there are dogs out there. Dogs out there. And that means all of a sudden my heartbeat starts going up. Now, it's going fast enough because I'm biking, okay? I don't need my heartbeat to be any faster than it already is. But, you know, when I see a dog out there, I'm thinking, oh, boy, here we go. I'm going to have to really rev it up. And, And it never happens. Those dogs have been trained that when some bald guy comes by and he looks menacing, just let him go. All right? They've been trained. I love trained dogs. Now, I don't want one. I don't want one near me, but I love the fact that a trained dog is not coming after me. You know what I mean? Uh, now, I've had some dogs do that. Uh, in fact, I was, uh, I was jogging the other day and, uh, same neighborhood. I was outside the rich people's places and I was going home. And all of a sudden, a dog came out and it was menacing and there was no owner in sight. Teeth were bearing, uh, the, 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 uh, the tail was up. Everything it says, hey, be scared of this dog. I'm seeing in this dog. He's coming after me. And I'm thinking, oh, oh. And my heartbeat's going way, way, way up. And I'm thinking, oh, oh. And finally, the owner appeared and said, stop. And the dog just kind of stopped and went away. I'm thinking, I'm not sure I like that dog, but I like that owner. <laughs> Why? Because the dog had been trained. When I say stop, you stop. Listen, that is what the Bible understands as meekness. When you are told to obey, you obey, and you'll be a meek person. When you're told to go, you go. When you're told to stop, you stop. That is the definition of meekness. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, it basically is saying, blessed are those who are under God's control. And what you've done is you have, in that moment, said, I switch over my control In fact, I saw this in A.W. Tozer this week. He who waits upon the Lord shall renew his strength. That word renew, says Tozer, could be alternatively understood as exchange. Exchange your strength. And Tozer says, I'm thinking most of the Christian life is a good exchange. I exchange this for this. And God's this is always better than your this. Right? So God's control means, all right, Matt, you are going to trade in the control over your life and you're going to exchange it for my control over your life. That's a beautiful definition of meekness as well. All of a sudden now I have control over all of you. I have control over your finances. I have control over your sexuality. I have control over your vocation and even what you choose to do for a vocation. I have control over your recreational time. I have control over your life. Absolute control. And inasmuch as you've given him absolute control, you are meek. And that's precisely what the definition means. Now, I think it could be furthered, and I think this psalm is not so much a prayer, but it is a roadmap. It is a blueprint. It is a worldview for life. John Wesley says, meekness is the most important disposition in the whole Christian faith. That disposition of, I no longer control my life. I've given it up to you. I've abandoned myself to you. So let's just look at this first off. uh, Meekness defined. And you can see this in verses 3 and 4 especially. Just real quick, I want you to know when you think about meekness defined, one of the things we think of especially uh, were not so much dogs back in the time of Jesus, but horses at the time of Jesus. And so I looked that up. I did not know there's a whole thing called gentling. Ever heard of gentling before? I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard gentle used as a verb. Uh, When you gentle a horse, there's a term in the horse world known as gentling. It refers to working with a wild horse. By the way, it's probably true not just of horses. It's probably also true of dogs or other domesticated animals, even people. I'm very interested in that. What's it mean to gentle Matt Friedman? How can Matt Friedman be gentled? And, and and that's what this whole thing's about today. You gentle a horse until it becomes responsive to a trainer's commands, meaning that it no longer wants to kick you in the face. Or if your dog no longer wants to bite anybody you see, you only want to do with the master, what your owner wants you to do. If handled properly, it even bonds with the trainer, the, the horse with the trainer. Now, it's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. But... Once this gentling process is done, it will obey the slightest commandment, know what to do even when the master's not there, and pay even the price of life to do whatever the owner or whatever the master wants it to do. Now, I think that's true enough for a master and the horse, but I think it's more true of God with us, is He wants to disciple us, gentle us, so that we'll do everything He wants us to do. And not do anything He doesn't want us to do. And so I'm thinking about that right now. And I'm looking here at verses 3 and 4 to see what is it that the psalmist does in order to defy meekness. And here we go. It means to trust. But it's not just saying, hey, I'm going to trust Him and sit around. No, you're also going to be doing good. So this trust faith... This faith in Christ, is not just, hey, so I can get to heaven. He wants to then give you the power, give you the motivation, give you the unction to act on it, to act on that trust and go do good. Then he says, I want you to dwell in the land. Everybody here has a promised land that looks a little bit different than everybody else's promised land. You get that? It was true of everybody that went into the promised land. Here we go. We're going to this promised land. We're going to have to defeat some enemies, but eventually everybody gets their little plot. And family member, your plot looks a little bit different than this guy's plot. Doesn't matter. I'm going to give you that plot. You work it for my glory. Everybody here has land that he wants you in. I don't mean land as in land. I mean a place where he wants you, a thing to do that he wants you to do, and a trust he wants you to exercise daily. It may be, for instance, my land would be, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher at a seminary. So... Matt, that's your land. I want you to teach. I want you to teach well. I've given you a church. I want you to preach. Preach well. Lead that church well. These are your places, Matt. You know, if there was ever come a time where I have a radio show or a podcast or something, Matt, that's also land I want you to possess. Possess it well for me. Not for you. You don't own the land. I own the land, Matt. But I'm going to let you be on that land for me. So, Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. That word cultivate is an interesting one. Looked it up this week in the Hebrew. It means to befriend. In fact, the ESV actually think it has that way. Befriend faithfulness. Or it could be feed on faithfulness. It's, it's a word that's variously used, but kind of interesting. Then it says this. Delight yourself in your favorite football team. There's more delight going on like that in this nation right now than there is in the Lord, even by some Christians. But I want you to delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself not in the profits you're making in your business, but delight yourself in me. Find pleasure in me. Then he says, commit your way to me and then rest in me. Wait patiently for me. That whole thing of rest and wait patiently doesn't mean I cease all activities. It could mean that. But typically when it says that is anticipate that I'm about ready to do something big. This morning, before I got to church, someone said, hey Matt, pray for you this morning. I want you to know this. Something really good's gonna happen in church today. Get ready for it. Are you ready for it, Matt? Get ready for it. Ooh, I like that. That's what it means. Rest in Christ, Matt. Wait patiently for him, and it." will happen. Now the guy that's working hardest right now is the guy that's not resting so much and that's me going up back and forth and I I can feel my bald head starting to sweat. But even so, what it means is I'm resting, I'm waiting, knowing something really good's about ready to happen. I believe that with this church service, with this church service today. And so we wait patiently for him. This is a great definition of meekness. Trust. Do good. Dwell in the land. Delight yourself. Rest in Him. Wait patiently. Anticipate Him. Good stuff. And this is how God wants to gentle us into being His meek people. Now, the second thing we'll cover today is this. He wants you to be meek in the midst of chaos. I don't know. Anybody here got a chaotic life right now? Things aren't going quite like you thought they might or maybe like they should. Now, if you're thinking, no, that's not my life right now, it will be. You'll be in chaos chaos soon enough. And when you're in chaos, know that God does some of his best work in the midst of the chaos. So if you'll look with me there in uh, verses one and nine, it says, the wicked do evil and they do wrong. In verse seven B, it says, they seem to prosper. Now, how aggravating is that? They're doing wrong. Everybody can see it. They're wicked. Everybody can see it, and yet they prosper. And everybody can see that too. And that just kind of tick you off? Lord, how can that happen? But it's happened throughout human history. And so, the final story, by the way, will uh, we'll shed some light on that. But it's happened throughout human history. And the Lord says, yeah, whatever, I want you to stay meek. Because guess what? If you stay meek, and you raise children to stay meek, and you invest in the church that keeps people meek, guess what happens? We win. We inherit the earth. We inherit the land. Stay patient. Stay faithful. Keep it up. And then, verse 12, they plot against the righteous. It's not like they're trying to even fake it. They're plotting against the righteous people, against us. And then, verse 14, they have drawn their weapons. Their swords are out. Their knives are out. They're ready to go. They've got guns, these people. They're ready to go. And then it says they cast down the poor. They look for the vulnerable amongst them. They cast them down and they do more than just simply cast down. They slay. They'll actually use that gun on you. They will use it. They'll use those knives on you. That sword is going into your flesh. This is the stuff that happens. This is the chaos that the wicked bring to a culture. And y'all, we ought to know a little bit about this. I don't know if we do or not. We ought to know a little bit about this. I don't know if you've noticed... They're actually doing national articles right now on how dangerous the Jackson metro area is. How dangerous this place is. How, How dare they do that? I like this place. Like it or not, you just need to know it's more dangerous than other places. But guess what? God does some of His best work in dangerous places. God does some of His best work when there is wickedness. And so we just hold with faith to that. Now, there's a couple things to do in the midst of the chaos. Number one, keep your composure. It's easy to lose it when there's chaos. Don't you lose it. Do not fret. Do not be envious. I, I don't know. I, I When this guy came along, when this quarterback came along, I thought there would probably never be anybody close to as good as that. And, you know, next couple quarterbacks were not only close but better. But at the time, I thought Joe Montana... There could not be anybody better than that. They say he didn't have the best arm, didn't have a rifle arm, wasn't the best athlete as far as running and jumping, but my good, the thing that made him great was composure. He could keep his composure. He had ice in his veins when everyone else was flipping out. They called it world-class calmness. You may remember Joe Montana, who I'm even talking about. Played for the 49ers, kind of had a couple mop-up years with the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, he said, when the, when the game was at the height of tension, Joe Montana was cool a cucumber. Uh, now, the best illustration for this that I know of is 1989. They're in the Super Bowl, and they're playing the Denver Broncos, and they are down by three points. And so they've got to get down there and at least kick a field goal so they can end this game in overtime. But there's 3.20 left, and they're way back. They're a long way from the goal line. And Joe Montana's in the huddle. And he sees somebody, not a receiver. He, re- he sees a personality. He's in the huddle, he looks up, and he says to tackle Harris Barton there in the stands, sitting near the exit ramp. Isn't that John Candy? <laughs> hey, Joe, this is a Super Bowl. It's 320. We're about ready to lose this thing, and you're looking up the stands, looking for movie stars? Say, isn't that John Candy? And everybody, the whole huddle, turns around and looks up to try to find John Candy. But he done it. Now, I don't know if you know this. I, you know, I, I, Maybe I, I haven't told you more than 20 times. This happened to me one day. I was at the uh, Big Eight Championships. I was in the ring, and I wasn't doing very well. And uh, hadn't felt right since high school. I remember in high school, boy, I could throw that discus. And I'm at the Big 8 Championships, and I'm about ready to throw the discus. I'm in about third place, and know I should be in first place, but it's not happening. And all of a sudden, I'm getting ready to throw, and I say, this one's going to, I'm going to throw this one out there. This one's ready to go. And my coach stands about uh, 30 feet away from me on the track. He looks at me, and he says, hey, Matt, you know, why is he doing that? I'm about ready to wind up and go. I look up and says, what, coach? He says, Smile. Coach, come on. He said, no, Matt, smile. So I go, and then I throw it. And the minute I let go of it, I said two words, that's it. And that very throw won the meet. And it won the meet because I was finally chilled out. Any great athlete will tell you, when they finally did their best performance, it felt like they were hardly trying. Any discus thrower will say, my best throw, I didn't even feel like I was trying. My my arm just, even shot put, you think, a shot put's a bigger, no, that's not. They will tell you, it felt like I was hardly trying, and that shot just came out. I think it's true of footballers, of wrestlers, it's just, when you are throwing your best, you are calm, you are relaxed, and I think that's exactly what Joe Montana was trying to tell his guys, relax, guys. We might lose this in the next three twenty seconds, but or three minutes and twenty seconds, but at least let's have fun doing it. John Candy's up there watching, let's go. And they won the game. And they won the game. And uh several plays later it was a touchdown pass in the end zone, as well you know, 34 seconds left. That was one of Montana's 31 fourth quarter comebacks. He's calm. And I think Jesus in this passage says to us, listen, your life is frequently going to be in chaos and you're frequently going to be in trouble and you're frequently going to be nervous and you're frequently going to be tense. Chill out. Loosen up. Be calm. Be meek. And watch me do my thing. It says, keep your composure. Do not fret. Do not be envious. The second thing is, cease from anger and forsake wrath. A guy named Robert Plutchik, professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, identified what he called the basic emotions. Here are the basic emotions. See See if this is right for you. There's joy. There's trust. There's fear. There's surprise, sadness, disgust, anger, and anticipation. Eight basic emotions. Now, other scholars have said, no, there's 48. I don't even know where you go with for that many more, 40 more emotions than that. And one guy says, no, there's 412 emotions, and you can tell them all by facial expressions. I have no idea what 412 different emotions are. But when I was reading this, the guy says, when you read the Psalms, you're going to be able to find dozens of emotions. And the emotions are okay, they just got to be consecrated to the Lord. When you express an emotion, you've got to consecrate that emotion to the Lord. I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means this. I got a friend named Brady. And uh, we were in a Bible study one time, and Brady says, you know, at one point I had a guy in my Bible study say this, I am angry at God. In fact, I don't even think He exists anymore. I'm angry at Him. Now, that's kind of two hard things to do. I'm angry at him. I don't think he exists. So my friend Brady, very wise, Brady said, hey, pal, go ahead and talk to him right now about that. And the guy says, what? He says, just look up and talk to him. Just tell him you're mad. Tell him you're angry. It's okay. David does it all the time in the Bible. Just do it. Look up. And so he did it. He looked up, and at the end of the prayer, he was fully in God's hand. That once it got personal between him and God, I think that's a problem sometimes. It gets impersonal between us and God, and we forget. We can express anger to him. It's okay. But just talk to him about it. Talk to him about it. And Brady said at the end of the conversation between him and God, he was in the Lord's hand. He was all that God wanted him to be. He was on board with Jesus. I'm thinking to myself, that was a brilliant moment in Brady's life. Jesus can take on our anger. He just wants you to bring it to Him instead of saying, hey, I'm going to take it to you, Noel. I'm, man, I'm taking it to you instead of taking it to God. Take it to the Lord. It's okay. He can handle it. And so this is what I believe. You do not default to your emotional dynamic, your emotional default position, whatever that might be, do not default to your emotions toward people ever. Now, this could be in terms of love. Don't default to your feeling of love in any situation. Offer that love up to God. Let God bring it back down to man. Do You hear what I'm saying? If we don't do that, then guess what? We have lots of sex outside of marriage. That is not the will of God for our lives. Can I say that again? If you go to your default position on love, particularly erotic love, and you're saying, Woo, I'm fired up about this girl. What should stop me from doing what I want to do right now? That's not consecrating your love to Jesus. It's saying, Let me go for it. And the same is true of anything. The same is true of hatred. The same is true of rage. The same is true of anger. It's okay to feel those things. God gave emotion to you. What you do, however, is take that to God and get a personal conversation going with Him about that instead of taking it right to man. And that's what it means when it says here, cease from anger. Because if you don't cease from anger, it's going to get a little bit hairy in your life and you're not going to like where anger takes you. Anybody ever been angry before? In a bad sense, angry? Amen. Anger when you didn't take it to Jesus? It's a bad place to be, isn't it? I see some people grinning right now. That's better than getting angry, I guess. You've been there like me? You've done that like me. I remember Christianity Today, nice uh, periodical, love that periodical actually. And the editor of it says, uh, I was with my wife the other day and uh, I got so mad. I got so, 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 so mad. I took my fist and I put it into the wall. He says, now, this is the editor of Christianity Today for crying out loud. He says, now, every other time I'd done that, the Holy Spirit had moved the joint. But he didn't this time. And my hand went right into steel and broke my hand. And my wife got me into the car, took me to the hospital. And now I've got a nice little uh, cast on my hand. While in fact I type with my left hand, y'all, what he was trying to say in that moment is, this is for everybody. Anybody can get so angry that you lose yourself in the moment instead of consecrating that to the Lord. And then so much is that was what is being talked about as me here is, don't get angry and use it in a stupid way. And all of us are very capable of that kind of stupidity. Third thing is this. We're about done here. Number three, meekness. You need to recognize the payoffs of being meek. Uh, Elton Trueblood was an old Quaker, wrote a lot of really great books. But in one of his books, he talks about how the pole vaulter. And by the way, I used to be a roommate with the American record holder in the pole vault. I mean, this guy was really good. I think Jeff Buckingham. Room with him in the Jayhawk Towers, and just to walk, watch him walk in and out of the doorway, just as a quiet an experience. He was a great, he was a phenomenal athlete. Only little guy, but boy, he could bend that pole. He could throw the pole away. He could get over the bar, and his best record. This is 30, 30 years ago, thirty-five years ago. At that point, he was eighteen-eight, which is still an incredible, incredible height for a pole vaulter. But thirty years later, it is. But Jeff, uh, interesting enough. El Trouba wrote about Jeff without ever using Jeff's name. He's just talking about pole vaulters. He says, pole vaulters, train hard to put that pole into a box, to bend that pole, to be able to throw that pole away and get over bar. You can't imagine how many muscles it takes, the kind of courage it takes, the kind of just flat-out chutzpah it takes to do all that. To get to that point... You've got to go through arduous training. You've got to give your life up, basically to the pole vault. And El Trubulat says, and that is the definition of meekness. You go through a time of being gentled by your coach, gentled by Jesus so that you can do extraordinary things. If you're unwilling to be gentled by Jesus, disciplined by Jesus, go through the marching paces like Jesus wants you to do, then you are unwilling to be a great Paul Walter or to be a meek Christian. And so I remember guys like Jeff Buckingham and all that it took to get him over the bar, just like I remember some of you here today, and all the things you do for Jesus. You didn't get converted last week and are doing those things this week. You have been gentled by Jesus over years and over decades. And that's why you're so phenomenal for Jesus today. Thank you. Thank you for being gentled. Now, what's it mean to inherit the land? The payoff for being meek is inheriting the land. It's going to be a land of purpose and a meaning, a life of purpose and meaning. Didn't say anything about being easy. It usually isn't easy. So if you want ease, there's probably a better religion than Christianity for you. But what it is, is meaningful. It's purposeful. It's a land where the presence of God is right there. It's a land where the will of God for your life is coming to tremendous fruition. And I tell you what, it's a good life. It's the prosperous life. It's the abundant life. First thing is inherit the land. Second thing is just remember the wicked will wither wickedness will fade. It is not forever. You hang in there. Last week we talked about Viktor Frankl. Remember him? He was at Auschwitz. And while he was at Auschwitz, he noted some people were dying before they ever got to the, uh, ele- before they ever got the incinerator. And some people were living through the whole experience. He wondered, what's the difference between the two? And the difference was this. The people who were dying thought wickedness is not going to fade. Wickedness is going to march on mightily through this experience and beyond this experience. But the people who were living through it all knew that Adolf Hitler was going down, Nazism was going down, wickedness is going down. We're going to live after this. We're going to have families after this. We're going to enjoy prosperity after this. Those are the people that were living. Guys, you just need to know wickedness is not forever. Eventually, we win and we win big. Stories told of a farmer. A farmer. He was in Kansas, and he had a strong disdain for the church. And so he plowed his field on Sunday morning. And as the Christians went by, dressed in their Sunday-going-to-meeting suits and dresses, he would shake his fist at the church people on their way to worship. Then July came, and a harvest in, in uh, Kansas is usually end of June. And end of July. July, mid, mid-July came, and the farmer had the best crop ever best in the entire county. And so he he placed an advertisement in the local paper. He made fun of the Christians, made fun of their faith in God, and towards the end of his diatribe, he wrote these words. Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response from the Christians in the community, they were kind, they were gentle, but somebody else took out a small ad, and all they said was this. God doesn't always settle his accounts in July. There's a day beyond this harvest. There's a day beyond today. And y'all, the meek will inherit the earth. So in coming days, this is what we're going to do uh, as far as what comes from our pulpit We're going to talk about what it means to surrender by grace through faith totally to Jesus Christ and how we can keep that totally surrendered life, that totally meek life going. And how we're going to keep it going is simply things like prayer and Bible study and fasting and getting together in small groups and works of mercy. And I can't wait to begin talking more and more with you about this because I think day Spring's best days are yet to come. And I think there are going to be great days when we say meekness is what we want to be as a people, and we want to maintain that meekness by the means of grace, or the habits of a Christian, or the habits of a Day Springer like we frequently read here. Lord, could you do that for us? We just want to be meek as you are meek. We believe in this gentling of God of our lives. Could you gentle us into the kingdom of God. So we can be, as a church, major players for you in this county, in this metro area, in this state, in this nation. Yes, in this world, we want to be all that you ever imagined that we could be. Blessed are the meek. Day Spring, stand right now. Could you all say that with me? Blessed are the meek. Yeah, say it now. Blessed are the meek. Are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. And Lord, I claim that for me, for my family, and for this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you very much.